Dear Heavenly Father, against you and you only have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and blameless when you judge. We thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, who is the true and final purification offering that cleanses us from all of our iniquity. We thank you for that. I pray that in light of that mercy shown to us in your Son, we will be cleansing, purifying, forgiving agents in the world for his name's sake. It's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, um, so the, we uncovered the remote for the uh, projector screen. I don't know who did, but it was here this morning, so that's wonderful. Uh, we'll work on the clarity of this projector at some point in the future, I hope, but uh, anyway. It doesn't? Okay. We, you would know. You've got the experience with it. This is my first time using it. I'm a little bummed, but that's okay. You have handouts, so uh, if you can't read the text on the screen, at least you can see it there. Uh, what I wanted to do is, <clears throat> last during our last meeting, we uh, talked about Leviticus 3 and um, the... Uh, uh, my goodness, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, the peace offering, golly, the, the fellowship <laughs> offering, the peace offering. Um, and we talked about that in Leviticus 3, and I wanted to just wrap up uh, with a, a brief little, just a few comments about that, because I had to sort of rush through that lesson. I ran out of time and skipped over some things, and I just wanted to try to put a point on, on that. And then we'll get into Leviticus 4 and 5 and hopefully cover both of those chapters today. Um, so, as you probably remember, I had to speed through some of that stuff. So I wanted to try to, again, put a point on all of this uh, from our last meeting. What I hope was clear to you from our last class on the peace or the fellowship offering um, was, uh, was that uh, the peace and fellowship offering, it wasn't just an ordinary meal, you might say, or even just an ordinary meal with God. Instead, it was a it was a meal that carried with it an important lesson about the relationship between God and those who worship Him. That is, the meal of the peace offering revealed to Israelite worshipers that they ate with God only because He first brought them out of a state of death, only because He raised them from the dead. He brought them up out of the grave, the Sheol of Egypt, and carried them to His holy mountain, His new Eden, which was the tabernacle, so that they could fellowship with Him and have a feast. Okay, that's, that's the point. It carried with it all of that import. Um, and that was my reasoning for walking you through the whole story of Joseph. It may have seemed a little strange. Well, you're talking about the Leviticus 3, but you spent most of your time talking about Genesis you know, 37. But all of that is a prerequisite. It's, it's uh, important for knowing what's going on, fully appreciating what's going on when the Israelites get to sit down and eat with God. In Leviticus 3. So um, as we look at our own worship on Sunday mornings, I think that we should take note that we too get to eat a meal with God. And we do this as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is a, a, this is a, a part that I didn't really get to focus on last week, but as we partake, uh, the week before I guess, as we partake of that supper, um, we do so only because God has made uh, His people, he's, he's made us to be in union with His Son Jesus. <laughs> who Jesus is, you'll probably 
know this from reading scripture on your own and hearing me talk about this, but Jesus is the greater Moses, right? Moses was just a type and shadow of Jesus. Moses leads the people of Israel out of the grave, uh, the Sheol of Egypt. Jesus leads his people out of the grave of sin and death. Now, one of the results of Jesus' saving work for us is that um, we get a seat at God's table every Sunday morning in the Lord's Supper. And one of the remarkable things about having a seat at God's table is that we don't have to eat alone anymore. Uh, There is a real sense in which uh, human beings, prior to coming to faith, becoming Christians, uh, in part, you become a Christian by joining the church, God's family, Uh, There aren't Lone Ranger Christians. The Bible doesn't know of Lone Ranger Christians. If someone tells you they're a Christian, but they despise the people of God and the gathering of the people of God by not going, uh, you should question whether that person is a Christian. You know, well, that might seem harsh and strange, but um, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't know where everyone is on these kinds of things. But in my mind, um, it's not not harsh. It's not strange. That's, uh, That's the truth. And hopefully in just a moment, it'll become clear why. But um, <clears throat> so uh, one of the things that we're told in the New Testament, well, well let me say this. So uh, I said that we don't have to eat alone anymore. Well, who do we get to eat with at the Lord's Supper? Well, we, we get to eat with two kinds of people. And uh, we get to eat with one person. We get to eat with two kinds of people. We get to eat with a divine person who is Jesus. And he's very present at the supper. Um, he's physically present at the supper. I'll say what I mean by that in just a moment. But we also get to eat with our brothers and sisters in the faith, our new family. Now, um, how, in what sense are we eating, are we seated with Jesus when we partake of the Lord's Supper? Well, one of the things we're told in the New Testament is that the church, our fellow Christians, The church is the very body of Christ on earth. Remember, we're his hands and feet. Jesus is the head of the body. So as you eat and drink here on Sunday mornings, you eat and drink surrounded by the body of Jesus. You're physical. I'm I'm a physical entity. Maybe we're not merely physical, but we are at least physical, right? You eat with the body of Christ. So Jesus is physically present, at least in that sense. Maybe other senses too, but at least in that sense, he's present. I think that's often overlooked. So so many of our debates and conversations about Christ's real presence in the supper um, focus around or, you know, center on uh, quote-unquote deep metaphysical questions. Um, But I don't think that they, they... have to. I think if they do focus solely on that, we've missed something. If we focus solely on that, we've really missed something important. We've literally missed Jesus sitting next to us in the chair. Now, you might say, but Michael, um, that's a hard saying. <laughs> who, can, who can hear that? Um, because these people I'm sitting next to, well, they're, they're not Jesus. They're just not Jesus. Joel's not Jesus. Jacob's not Jesus. Hazel's not Jesus. 
These people are just sinners, right? They're just regular old men and women, and they're sinners. They're just like me. They're not Jesus. But I think what I'd want to say to that, if I'm confronted with that sort of objection, is to say, but I think you're just wrong, at least in part, if that's the way you're thinking about it. You're right as far as it goes, right? It's true that the people in this room are sinners. It's true that you're a dirty sinner, just like them, that I am. Um, But yet again, if we think about it that way, we've missed something important. We've missed something important about the nature of God's words, right? So God's words act. This is one of the uh, central insights, I mean, ultimately, of the New Testament, and and this comes out in Paul very clearly, and we'll see in just a moment. Um, But this is, in terms of the Reformation figures, this is one of the central insights of Martin Luther, that God's words act. They do things. When he speaks, God's words make things that were not, well, suddenly they are, okay? The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 4, 17, when he writes, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, end quote. God's words are the, the kind of words that called the world into existence, right? All things were created through Christ who is the Word of the Father. The the very creative work and power that took place at the beginning of the world is the same creative work and power that takes place when you become a Christian, when you're baptized, when you join the household of God, the household of faith. So, um, one small, one part, but no small part of the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that we don't have to eat alone. And because Jesus, this is because Jesus has rescued you, us out of the grave of sin. We get to eat with both Jesus on Sunday mornings. You're looking at him. Don't look at me, look at one another too. That's the point, right? You get to see Jesus in your neighbor, the body of Christ. And you get to uh, eat with your brothers and sisters. Look around again. Where you find your brothers and sisters, that's where you find Jesus. In particular, um, and not to go too far down this rabbit trail, but we're going to find them, uh, we're going to find Jesus in the, in the profession of faith um, and lives of our brothers and sisters. Right? And as much as they're confessing Jesus as their Savior, Christ is present there. In, that, in, in, in them and in their confession. So I wanted to just um, put a point on the peace offering uh, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, so uh, that lesson. And um, now what I'm going to do is take up just a break, make a hard break from that, and we're going to move into Leviticus uh, chapter 4, okay, uh, 4 and 5, and we're going to look at the sin or the purification offering. So you can pull uh, that text up on your slides there, your handout. <clears throat> we'll read uh, Leviticus 4, 1 through 12, and then I'll, I will just read, it'll be on your next slide, portions from other parts of uh, Leviticus 4 and then from Leviticus 5. It's just too much to read all at once. We would eat too much of our time up, so you can't read all of it. But uh, So <clears throat> let me do this, starting in chapter 4, verse 1. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish, to the, uh, without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood of the horns uh, of the altar of fragrant incense, shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. Remember burnt offering, it's ascension offering. <coughs> <clears throat> at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove from the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all of its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, he shall burn it up. It shall be burned up, excuse me. <clears throat> We're going to jump down to verses 13 through 15. Of Leviticus 4, if the whole congregation, so you'll notice that, that this last one was about if the, uh, the anointed priest sins, so the, that section was about that. This next section is about the whole congregation. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering. And bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Let's go down to, go over to your right, uh, verses 22 through 24. This is for uh, if a leader sins or is defiled in some way. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Where, yes? Is, is, is there a reason there can be unintentionally here? Is that like... Yes. So the, for the recording, the question is, is, is the, um, there a reason that these are unintentional sins? Yes, well, I, I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you, I'll, that's what I'm going to go into next. It'll be one of, the, one of the first things we talk about. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about the nature of uh, unintentional sinning. Um, okay, so let's, uh, oh, really quickly, where, um, where they killed the burnt offering before the Lord? Where did they kill the burnt offering before the Lord? Does anyone remember this? Or where are they bringing it? Yeah, they're bringing it to the, basically to the altar um, in the courtyard. 
Um, but we find that out in Leviticus chapter 1. But, uh, Leviticus 4, uh, 27 through 29, and then verse 32. If any one of the common people sins, so the last section was about a leader sinning. This is if a common person sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. If he brings a lamb as his sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Let's go to chapter 5, just verses 7 and 11. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin he has committed a tenth of an ephah, a fine flour, for a sin offering. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in, in one of the lessons coming up, we're going to look at this uh, Leviticus 5, just one more time, a little section in Leviticus 5, because uh, we're going to see that this lays out an important um, uh, point of worship, uh, an important point about the order of worship. And what we're going to see is that um, the, sin, the pattern, the normal rule and pattern for sacrifices um, taking place under the Mosaic Covenant or in the tabernacle cultus um, was that the sin offering came first. Okay, uh, I won't get into all the details, but the sin offering came first. So we'll, we'll look at that in just a minute. Uh, or I'm sorry, in a later lesson. So <clears throat> let me uh, provide a few comments here. So uh, as with some of the other offerings that we've discussed, um, the name of this offering, the, that is sin offering in m many of our English translations, can be a little, just a little misleading. So many commentators, including the great Jewish commentator uh, Jacob Milgram, he's written, uh, that might be his magnum opus, is his multi-volume commentary on Leviticus, but They've suggested that the sin offering, as a name for this offering, is just slightly misleading, a slightly misleading way to translate um, uh, the, really to translate the meaning of the offering, because while the word, the Hebrew word for sin, chatat, is uh, used in the name of the offering, um, uh, and a lot of commentators uh, have noted that um, it's a bit problematic to just refer to it as a sin offering because that implies that it atones for or cleanses one from um, just moral failures. That's how we, especially you know, modern people, would think of it. It's sin. So we think of a moral failure, right? Like lying, stealing, I don't know, otherwise hurting someone. Um, but that's not quite right. If we read Leviticus closely in some other places, we see that uh, in, even in chapter 5, we see that the sin offering um, works to atone for various kinds of uh, um, not just uh, ceremonial defilements, okay? Um, but, but I'm sorry, let me say this. Let me go back. They think it's problematic to call it a sin offering because oftentimes it's used to refer to things that aren't obviously sins. It's used to refer to what we might call ceremonial defilements or impurities, right? But it covers both. If you go to uh, just the, the first few verses of chapter 5 and read about the sin offering, you find that it, uh, it works to atone for someone who uh, has information about like a trial that's taking place, um, and they decide not to um, speak up, right? That's an active sort of thing. That's an immoral 
kind of thing. We would think of that as being uh, maybe some sort of form of deception or lying. Well, the sin offering seems like it's going to atone for that kind of thing too, purify someone from that. So it's not just those moral defilements. It also works to cover uh, for ceremonial defilements or atone for ceremonial defilements. So um, if you go to Leviticus 12, 6 through 8, the sin offering can be offered by a woman after giving birth. And here's what it says. So, uh, so that, quote, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood, end quote. So it's not important for our purposes why giving birth or losing blood in the process of giving birth might defile someone. Instead, I just want us to see that sin offering was offered for things that weren't, strictly speaking, what we would consider moral violations. Okay, you could offer this uh, for becoming ceremonial, uh, ceremonially uh, defiled. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to just probably float back and forth between using sin offering and purification offering, um, which is the, the other... Uh, sort of linguistic tag commentators have put on it. So I'll float back and forth between sin offering and purification offering as I go through this talk. I just want you to know that. Um, so let's get to the unintentional sinning part. That's next up. We, we start off in just the first few verses of the chapter hearing about these unintentional sins. So what does it mean to sin unintentionally? Well, most commentators that I looked at think that unintentional sin has, as you might take guessed, has to do with sort of the awareness of the person or the group that's committed a sin. So um, this one scholar, Jay Sklar, he says that, uh, that typically will take two forms. First, it might be that a person was unaware of the law, um, was un- I'm sorry, the, the, unaware of a law given by God, was aware of a law given by God, but unaware that he or she broke the law. So they're aware of the law, but unaware that they broke the law. Um, so take, for example, uh, the law in Numbers 19, verse 14, where if someone dies in a house, the people who are in the house when the person dies and anyone who comes into that house after the person dies there will be unclean for seven days. Okay, they're impure. Um, they've, I don't want to get too much into this, but the, the short, you might wonder why. Well, it's because they're coming very into close contact with death. God is the God of life, and, and they're supposed to enter into the Garden of Eden, which is the place of life. It's the origin of life, and it's where all resurrected human beings will one day be again. The new heavens and the new earth is the Garden of Eden. Um, So if you've come close to death, you don't need to be carrying that death into the Garden of Eden with you again as you come to bring sacrifices and so on, right? So that's just a short little piece on that, but a thought on that. But, um, But we could imagine a scenario where someone is unaware. Someone from the camp wanders into a tent where someone's died. Let's just say whatever, um, you could imagine a case where whatever uh, uh, boundaries and uh, uh, impediments were supposed to be put in place, well, weren't put in place. Someone wanders into the tent and becomes uh, defiled, but they don't know it. They're aware of the law, but they just don't know that they've become defiled, right? So if they were to go off for sins within a seven-day period, um, they would be doing so unclean, okay? Um, so that might be one way uh, a sin might happen unintentionally. The other way uh, of unintentionally sinning might be that a person was just unaware of a particular law in the first place. Now, I don't think this would be very likely to happen um, because we know that the Jews were very serious about the law, at least in some parts of their history, um, short, short stints. But, uh, but uh, you could imagine a case where... Uh, Maybe some, uh, someone's parents didn't pass on 
uh, particular law. They just hadn't gotten there and they're, you know, teaching their children um, the laws of Moses or, or the priests who were supposed to actually go out into the camp and, and preach the law. Uh, maybe they didn't make it around to this part of the camp, you know. Uh, by the time this children was sort of, this child uh, we're imagining was old enough to sort of grasp what's being talked about. You can imagine a case like that. So maybe they're just totally unaware of a law and because of that they might end up defiling themselves ceremonially, right? So um, that's, those would be two, two ways that someone could become ceremonially, golly, I can't say it, unclean, excuse me, goodness. <laughs> Okay, um, so uh, let's go to Leviticus. We'll stay in Leviticus for, um, I want to take a look at this, uh, how these unintentional sins uh, that are taken care of are covered by this offering. Um, this uh, offering doesn't just uh, atone for, so to speak. It, it does that, but it also carries the confession of the person making the offering. So let's, uh, verses 13 through 14 of Leviticus 4, we read this. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt and they realize their guilt. I'm going to repeat that. When the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. So confession offering this offering to the Lord, in this case it would be a bull, and we'll break this down in just a moment, um, offering, the offering is a confession, confession that, ah, it's, I'm now aware that I'm defiled, I've been made uh, unclean to come before God, I want this to be done away with. I'm confessing that I'm unclean, that death and impurities can't enter into God's presence, and I need God to, because remember, God's always the one who provides the sacrifices for them. He tells us this in Leviticus 17. He's the one who provides the sacrifices on the altar for them. So they need God to cleanse them of their impurities so that they can enter into his holy presence. So this offering atones for the, the sinner's uh, sins, but it also, um, it also carries with it their confession. So we have this really nice picture here of confession and the forgiveness of sins, uh, sort of going hand in hand, even in the Old Testament. Okay, just want to point that out. Um, so let's move on to talk about, a little bit about the structure of the chapter. If we look at verses 3, 13, 22, and 27, um, we see that the purification offering takes on different forms depending on who's committed a sin. And this chart helps spell this out for us. So let's just briefly run over this. Um, if you have the anointed priest, who's the particular worshiper in this case, that's in verse 3. If he's um, become unclean in some way, either by some sort of moral defilement um, or uh, some sort of ceremonial defilement, well, he's got to bring a bull, a son of the herd. Okay, verse 3 of chapter 4 tells us that. I have, the I have three steps listed here. That the, um, there are actually, I think, roughly nine, maybe ten, depending on how you parse things out. But um, there, I've got the, uh, the first three steps or three important steps um, listed here in the other details um, column for what happens when someone sins. So uh, the uh, sacrifice is brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest himself, because he's the worshiper, performs the hand-leaning rite that we've talked about in classes past, right? 
And then there's this blood manipulation rite. And I have this up here because it looks like it's the same until you get down to this third where the, the leader sins and then the fourth, uh, the, the common person sins. And you'll notice that if um, in the case of the high priest or the whole congregation sinning, the item or animal they bring is the same. The uh, uh, priest performs the hand-leading rite, but in the case of the whole congregation, the elders perform it um, on behalf of the people. And uh, the blood in both cases is actually carried inside of the tent of meeting into the holy place, not the holy of holies. That only happens on uh, Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. But um, it is carried inside the holy place. Okay. Now, um, notice that if you get down to uh, leader here, the third row, the leader can bring an unblemished goat. We see that in verse 23 of chapter 4. Same thing, it's brought to the entrance of the tent. The leader uh, performs the hand-leading rite, and then the blood is not carried inside of the tent. Go down to the common person, verse 27. The common person can bring a different kind of animal, an unblemished female goat, an unblemished female lamb. Verse 32 tells us that. They can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7 says that. And then if they can't afford that, they can bring fine flour. And that fine flour gets mixed with oil and some other things. Uh, I just didn't include that text up here, but that's what happens. Um, so um, in this case, though, the common person, the one, again, the worshiper um, bringing the offering, places, uh, performs the hand-leaning rite, and there is a blood manipulation rite, but the blood doesn't make it inside the uh, tent of meeting. Okay, so there's some differences. Um, okay. Just wanted to lay that out. If you, did anyone have any questions about that chart or what's anything happening so far? Okay. All right. So uh, we see in verse 3, the beginning uh, of chapter 4, the beginning of the instructions for offering a sin offering, if it's the anointed priest who sins. Notice that if it's the anointed priest who sins, his sinning brings guilt not, on, not only on himself, but on the whole congregation of Israel. If it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. So uh, this suggests that the anointed priest is the representative head of the people. What happens to them happens to him. The, this is an important picture um, even for understanding uh, Christian worship and our, our um, relationship to God that who is, who is our great high priest? Okay, so let me say this. We are the house of God, the church is. So who's our great high priest? Yeah, Jesus is our great high priest, right? Um, we're routinely spoken of as being united to him in the New Testament. Right? We have union with Christ. But one of the consequences of that is that what happens to Jesus happens to us, right? Um, you, you get a picture of this here in the Old Testament. Jesus dies. Do we die? Yeah, we die. We actually die, um, both spiritually and physically. But Jesus is resurrected. Since we're united with him, what happens to us? Yeah, we're resurrected. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. I've got to make sure I get to that part today. So um, <clears throat> here's the process for this, this particular offering. Here are the nine steps I've come up with. It's on your next slide. So the bull is brought. This is with respect to the priest. The bull's brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. The hand-leaning rites performed. The animal's killed. The animal's blood is carried inside the tabernacle. 
The blood is sprinkled seven times in front of the veil of the Holy of Holies. Um, why is the blood sprinkled there? Well, might, it might be, the text doesn't tell us, but it might be that this is an indication that it is uh, the blood that has this purifying effect, right? Um, that the, the blood is represented before uh, to God. He's sitting on his throne in the Holy of Holies. It's represented, it's uh, presented to God as a, a, a cleansing agent, an atoning agent, and it's sprinkled seven times because it's a complete atonement. That's the picture it might be, it, maybe Moses is trying to paint for us here as he writes this and as they practiced it. Um, step six, the blood's placed on the horns of the altar of incense, and the remaining blood's poured out at the base of the ascension altar in the courtyard. Then the animal's fat is removed and burned on the altar of ascension. So the Lord gets his portion. You'll remember that um, from the week before last. And then the animal's skin, head, legs, entrails, and dung, basically the rest of the bull, is carried outside the camp to a clean place, an ash heap, and then it's burned up there. Now, um, <clears throat> so by bringing, I'm going to probably run through just a few things here. By bringing the, the blood of the bull, the substitute, into the tent, the priest is carrying the life of that animal into God's house. He's taking that animal and the person for whom that animal stands in as a substitute into the symbolic Garden of Eden. But you might be wondering, well, why is the priest, and this is where I think things get pretty interesting here, why is the priest throwing all this blood around inside of the, and smearing it on things inside of the, the tent of meeting? Well, in order to answer that question, I think we need to go to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 14 through 15. Basically, what we have there is a, Noah, a Moses, is um, he's ordaining Aaron and his sons to the Levitical priesthood. And, and ordaining them, he performs all these offerings and sacrifices, of course, one of which is the uh, sin offering. And this is what uh, those verses say in chapter 8 of Leviticus. Then Moses brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed... And he killed it, and as Moses took the blood, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. So that's the end of the quote. So we can see from this passage that the blood of the sin offering made atonement for and purified or cleansed the things that it touched. So when Moses put uh, blood on the altar, it purified it in Leviticus 8. Um, but it also consecrated it. It set it apart for special service to Yahweh, sacred service. It's not a common thing anymore. That altar is sacred, um, which is interesting because that altar in the New Testament gets picked up as an image of the prayers of the saints. So our prayers are sacred too. Um, so um, let's just jump down to, uh, here a little bit. Uh, how did, you might wonder, how, how did the furniture, the tabernacle itself and the furniture become defiled? Well, I think the, the best way to see this is that it's the, the sin of the priest and then uh, the sin of the people. When these, these entities uh, sin, the, God's house becomes defiled, okay? And uh, it has to be cleaned up. And so um, this, I'm going to make some connections here with the New Testament. This is uh, on your next slide. I think this foreshadows, the, the blood is the cleansing agent that cleans up God's house. And I think this foreshadows some things that we, read, uh, we end up reading about in the New Testament. Um, take, for example, John 2. 
Jesus says to a group of Jewish people after he cleanses the temple by running out the money changers and so on, they ask him, he say, they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And we read a little further, verses 19 through 22. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So here, and in other places, we can see that Jesus is identified as the true temple of God, the place where the fullness of uh, divinity dwells well, bodily. It tabernacles in Jesus' Jesus's body. So the tabernacle and temple um, of the Old Testament, well, they're just mere types and shadows of Jesus' body. In fact, um, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, the uh, writer of Hebrews says that the, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place represents Jesus' body, somatai is the word he uses. And um, this basically just suggests to us that Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. These, again, these things are types and shadows of Jesus. But why is this significant? Uh, why is it significant that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple? Well, check this out. I think this is fascinating. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24. We read this, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. This is what Peter says. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, uh, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body. Somatai, this is where um, Peter uses somatai, excuse me, on the tree. That we might, uh, I think sarks is what, um, or a form of sarks is what the writer of Hebrews used, I'm sorry. But... He, bore, uh, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You may not have known it, but that, I think, um, that this passage in 1 Peter 2 um, really makes the most sense against the um, Old Testament background, what's happening in the tabernacle. <clears throat> if we take 1 Peter 2, John 2, Hebrews 10, we put all these together, Jesus is the true temple of God, and as the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament, it collected the sins of the people. When the priest sinned, it acts as a magnet. It takes on to itself the sin of the priest. As the people sin, it takes on the sin. Uh, it attracts the sin of the people. God's taking the sins of his people on to himself. But why does he do it? Because he set up a way to purify them from their sins. Right? He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll fix this for you. I will literally take your sins into myself. I'll bring them uh, into, into my presence, into where I dwell. And as I do that, don't worry, I've got a way uh, to fix all of this. Because he's not satisfied with just bringing our sins in, in, into himself, into his house. He wants to bring us to his bosom. Right? He wants to bring us into his house. So <clears throat> Jesus, um, as the new temple of God, bears our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that as he sheds his blood, his blood can purify God's house. Well, who's God's house now? Well, we are. We're the body of Christ. He's the temple. So as his body that has all of our sins stored up in it, this is, these are the images used in Scripture. Is cleansed by His blood. His church is cleansed. His people are cleansed. 
And then lastly, I'll just say this. Um, God, this is so cool. Think about what the tabernacle is. It's the Garden of Eden, which the Garden of Eden is uh, just a type and shadow of heaven. It's the promised land. So um, as the blood cleanses God's house, it's cleansing the land. We read over and over again in the New Testament that the land can become defiled, and that's a terrible thing, right? Because when the land becomes defiled, God might leave, well, he will leave the land, right? It needs to be purified. It needs to be atoned for. So as the tabernacle, the Garden of Eden, the Promised Land, has this blood that purifies and cleanses things thrown all over it and spread on its furniture, this isn't just a picture of God's house and God's people being cleansed from their sins and purified through the blood of Jesus. This is also a symbol of Jesus' blood purifying the whole world. All of reality, right? It's the kind of thing that wipes impurity away from every bit of reality. Now, where do we read about this um, in the Bible? Well, I can't read it to you now, but go read Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, is a, uh, we call it a new covenant promise. It's just a series of promises um, uh, about God saving his people through Christ. Okay? And um, what you're going to find is that God's purifying his people. He purifies a nation. He purifies land. And that land is referred to as becoming, uh, it's no longer going to be desolate, but it will become like the Garden of Eden. So, um, <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning from the day that it will be delivered from its corruption. That's what Jesus' blood does. His blood cleanses everything. It cleanses uh, us individually. Salvation is an individual. It's, it's a reality for individuals. Salvation and atonement is also a corporate reality. It cleanses the church, the body of Christ as a whole, and it's a cosmic reality, right? It cleanses the whole world and leads to the transformation of that world. Turns it into the kingdom of God. So uh, that's it. Uh, we will hopefully next week uh, knock out a few more chapters and we'll wrap this up in probably, what, three or four weeks or something. So, all right. Thank you all so much.